The Daily Journal is very pleased to bring you not only this podcast, but also the opportunity to receive California CLE credit for having listened to it. If you'd like to receive one hour of participatory CLE credit for having tuned into this program, it's very easy to do. Just go to our website, www.dailyjournal.com. Go to our podcast library and find this episode. There you'll find a link to a short true-false test. Once you've taken that, one hour of participatory credit can be yours for a very nominal fee. We do appreciate folks that take the opportunity to receive this CLE credit as it helps us continue to offer this podcast to you outside of our usual paywall. In addition to CLE credit for this podcast, we have a full library of podcasts that have aired previous dates and those all have CLE tests attached to them as well. And also in the daily newspaper, we have a range of CLE offerings as well, many attached to prospective columns written by our attorney subscribers. So we hope you'll take the opportunity to claim the CLE credit that the Daily Journal has to offer. Hello, I'm Howard Miller, contributing editor and podcast host for The Daily Journal. And today our guest is Hillary Bricken. Ms. Bricken is an expert in the area of cannabis law, and we will talk to her about her background. And the purpose of this podcast is to review and go over the issues as they arise in a dynamic new area of law uh, that has become a center of many practices and of great interest to many people. Uh, Hillary, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Howard. I really appreciate it. Uh, Tell us about you, your background, how you got into this, uh, your law firm, your practice, and how you became so involved and so knowledgeable about this area of law. Sure. Um, Well, I've been practicing for about 10 years, and in that time, my focus has really been corporate governance, transactional work, and mergers and acquisitions with this underpinning of the regulatory impact, really what started with controlled substances, but kind of quickly distilled down to just cannabis, because that's where the market demand was. And I'm licensed in Washington, California, and the state of Florida. And at this point, in all three of those states, I have practiced in this particular area Every single state is different in how they treat these regulatory regimes. This is a very robust area of the law from the administrative practice perspective. But I got my start in the state of Washington in this area in around 2011. Um, And at the time, the state really had only this kind of cottage, non-governmental oversight, collective garden program, which nobody paid taxes there really were no checks and balances. It was very loosey-goosey, and those folks needed a lot of corporate help to be taken seriously by investors and to organize themselves accordingly in the event of disaster, of lawsuits, and just general good corporate governance practices. So that's really where I got my start. Well, let's focus on, on California. Uh, tell us about the, the, the background, the legal history in California behind the cannabis Even before we got into the current regulatory regimes and initiatives, uh, what is some of the history here in terms of the legal background? Well, California is a very interesting state because it is literally the first mover. It was the catalyst behind state-by-state legalization, at least in my opinion, and certainly the pioneer behind allowing medical patients to access cannabis without a prescription from their physicians, which is a really big deal. And in 1996... Your People's Initiative, which is really amazing. Obviously, it's direct democracy in action, the people literally taking control of law. They voted to pass the Compassionate Use Act, which is commonly known as Proposition 215. Prop 215 is still alive today. And what Prop 215 did was allow qualified patients with certain debilitating conditions, including AIDS and HIV, and even chronic pain, to use cannabis We didn't even really have certain restrictions on amounts back then to treat these ailments so long as they had a recommendation from their treating physician, which in California is going to be an MD or a DO. Other states have done this differently where a variety of healthcare providers can recommend cannabis. But California was really the first to enable doctors to recommend and allow them to talk about with their patients the medical benefits of cannabis. And it really grew from there. Um, And then in 2004, 
because the industry began to commercialize, entrepreneurs began to see an opportunity here in this very gray area, loopish area of the law, despite federal illegality. The Assembly passed Senate Bill 420, which I know sounds ironic, um, given the number. I don't think that was intentional. But what it did was really codify this kind of closed-loop system that enabled patients to serve each other, cultivate medicine for one another, and to create networks of caregivers to enable access to medical cannabis. And this is where you have this proliferation of dispensary storefronts, organized cultivation sites, and manufacturers throughout the state of California on the back of that legislation. So fast forward, we've only had movement in 96 and 2004. Um, that's a massive cap, in my opinion. Fast forward to October 2015. The federal government, in response to legalization in Colorado and Washington in 2012, releases a memo around 2013 that says, we're going to be hands-off, essentially. So long as the state has robust enough regulation to control cannabis, we're going to stand down. And there were eight attendant enforcement priorities that the feds were going to follow. Well, California at that time would not have in any way been compliant with that federal memo. And the assembly, reading between the lines, decided we really need to regulate. And not only regulate, we need to tax and get very organized within a very tight licensing system. And they passed the Medical Marijuana Regulation and Safety Act. And this was a super comprehensive piece of legislation, really on the back of three bills that created the first regulatory system ever in the state of California dedicated to cannabis. Fast forward again to November 2016, Proposition 64, the Adult Use of Marijuana Act, is on the ballot. And of course, voters decide it's time we want adult use in the state of California. And again, this is way after Colorado and Washington undertook their democratic experiments. So we had states to lead the way. We had a really good federal enforcement memo from the Department of Justice. It was time. When that passes, we basically have two parallel licensing tracks for adult use and medical. And when Jerry Brown was still governor, he decided in a budget trailer bill with input from the assembly, input from regulators, that the two needed to be combined. And that created the law that we have today, which is the Medicinal and Adult Use Cannabis Regulation and Safety Act, which is a mouthful. It's called Malcursa. And this is the licensing system that we have for both medicinal and adult use. Um, it is alive and well today, parallel with Prop 215. And if you want to get a license, you have to go through Malcursa to get there. But we still have statutory issues. The Attorney General's memo was one thing, but there still is a substantial conflict between the statutes and the federal law and what is happening in California and elsewhere. How, how is that playing out and, and what, what is involved in the risks there? You are 100% correct. Uh, despite these laboratories of democracy on a state-by-state -state basis, the federal government still has cannabis listed as a Schedule One controlled substance on the Controlled Substances Act. What that means is that Basically, in the opinion of the federal government, cannabis is an extremely dangerous drug with a high potential for abuse, even if utilized under medical supervision, and it has no medical efficacy as recognized by the federal government. Um, in the opinion of our federal government, cannabis is safer than cocaine, and it makes its home uh, on the Controlled Substances Act next to heroin and LSD. So you can imagine the tension that this creates for law enforcement, given that cannabis has been a Schedule One for many, many decades, and how the conflict has manifested has really kind of taken on several shapes. Um, the primary one, the fundamental one that matters, I think, to everybody that's in the industry, from lawyers to landlords to actual licensees, were the federal enforcement memoranda that started to issue from the federal government starting back in 2009. And importantly for listeners, anyone that's looking to get into this practice area or that has gotten into it but maybe doesn't know the history would be wise to go back and look at the lineage of the enforcement memos because they really tell us what the priorities of federal prosecutors were and frankly what they are today. Um, and the first memo issued back in 2009, what it said, and this is obviously in response medical cannabis on the West Coast between California, Oregon, and Washington, all three of those states had medical cannabis from 96 to 1998 
through present day was that if an operator was in clear and unambiguous compliance with their state's laws, the federal government would not make them an enforcement priority. And the federal government has never really prioritized prosecuting medical cannabis patients either. It's just not on the list. Um, this was a pretty big deal. And in response to that memorandum, which, by the way, is for U.S. attorneys, by U.S. attorneys, that is not meant for public consumption by you or me or any other private practitioner. Um, it's really to tell the U.S. attorneys how to do their job. It was the catalyst for major growth in the cannabis industry. Many operators looked at that. Many lawyers looked at that and decided now's the time that we can expand. So long as we comply with state law, we shouldn't have a problem. Well, the issue with most state laws was that they were totally ambiguous. They had no control over size. There's no government oversight or regulatory backbone. So it was basically a free-for-all. And then in 2011, we get the second enforcement memorandum of all time on this topic. And that memo said, forget about clear and unambiguous compliance. Everyone is a target. P.S. The bigger you are, the harder you fall. And we are not waiving any of our rights to prosecute under the CSA. You've been warned. And after that memo issued... This, pardon me, but this, multiple, the CSA, CSA here is the Controlled Substances Act. Correct. Yeah. When I say CSA, I mean Controlled Substances mm -hmm. Act. And when I say Malcursa, I mean the Medicinal Adult Use Cannabis Regulation and Safety Act here in California, because we're going to delve into that again. But under, under the CSA... Basically, these U.S. attorneys now have been told, disregard state law compliance. It is totally irrelevant and do your jobs accordingly within your districts. And they did. And within multiple districts, really in every state that had medical cannabis at that time, again, predominantly West Coast, we had an uptick in prosecutions, raids, and jail time for people who were violating the CSA um, under federal law. So when California, excuse me, when Washington and Colorado decided to legalize, and in Washington, and it was a people's vote through an initiative, in Colorado, it was a constitutional amendment, also a people's vote. It was incredibly novel to do this in the wake of these enforcement memos with a very unpredictable federal government and no sign from Congress of changing the CSA relative to cannabis scheduling. When they legalized, well into their regulatory programs, which really did not commence until about early 2013, the federal government issued yet another enforcement memorandum in August of 2013, finally articulating their position on how they would treat enforcement of the CSA in these two states. And this is a pivotal moment. Um, and recall, these are not meant for public consumption. They don't change the law. They're not going to help you in a court of law in the event of a criminal prosecution. But it was hugely illuminating as to what the federal government valued in this context. And in that memo, commonly known as the Cole Memo, which is named for the deputy U.S. attorney who authored it, it basically said a few things. Number one, we're not going to waste time and money pursuing Colorado or Washington in federal court to overturn their laws. That was a fairly significant victory. Um, and I remain convinced that it's not a slam dunk for the feds to pursue the states in that vein because of states' rights. And the second thing that the memo said, and probably the most important thing, was that the federal government was going to look to eight enforcement priorities to dictate the time, money, and manpower they would throw at going after state law compliant operators. And these were very commonsensical enforcement priorities. Everything from not dealing drugs to kids not diverting product over state lines or over international borders, not cultivating cannabis on public lands, things that a licensee in a robust regulatory regime would never be allowed to do anyway. And in between the lines in that memo, the message really was from the feds, as long as your regulatory program is strong enough to actually lend control to the CSA to help us, we are going to let the states and the cities and the counties deal with this issue. But if they don't or they can't or the program's inadequate, we are going to rev up enforcement priorities. And that memo basically dictated until 2018 how all of these states ran their licensing programs from medicinal to adult use, even limited medicinal with CBD, um, commonly known as cannabidiol, 
very popular in the Southeast with those programs that are stepping stones into medical cannabis like Florida. It was a very big development because that federal memo, which is truly meaningless legally, set up multiple regulatory regimes on the state level that are still active today. And inevitably, what happened, where are we now? Basically, after California passed Prop 64 and we got our regulations together as of January 1, 2018, when licenses began to issue, about two to three days after adult use sales commenced, then acting U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions, who, when testifying before Congress, went on record that he's not a personal fan of cannabis. And I think many industry practitioners, experts realize Something's going to happen. The Cole Memo is not going to reign supreme. We're going to have some friction here with this particular U.S. Attorney General. And it was true. Um, A couple of days after California commenced adult use sales, Sessions issues a memo. It's a single page rescinding all federal guidance on the CSA relative to states that have licensing regimes. And that memo also reiterates that Congress has pronounced that cannabis is a dangerous controlled substance and U.S. attorneys should act in accordance with the priorities and resources within their district. So Jeff Sessions, in one self-swoop of the pen as acting U.S. attorney general, basically undoes all of the cannabis enforcement policies at the federal level, leaving total ambiguity as to how these individual U.S. attorneys will enforce federal law in their individual districts. Um, It was pretty distressing. Now we get to Bill Barr, who is the current acting U.S. Attorney General, testified when he was trying to get the job that on this particular issue, he would return to coal memo principles. He doesn't like how this has played out between the states and the feds. He believes the feds have let it get out of control, but he's got bigger fish to fry, essentially, and now we would return to coal memo enforcement priorities. He has not authored a memo, nor have any of his U.S. Attorney General deputies issued any memo to that effect. But for all intents and purposes, the U.S. attorneys have mostly stood down since the issuance of the Sessions memo. So as far as we know, as far as we can tell, we're back to 2013 Cole Memo principles, but that is not entirely certain. Uh, because obviously U.S. attorneys have full prosecutorial discretion. If they have issues within their district relative to cannabis licensees, they will fully disregard and they are um, totally within bounds of the law to disregard state law and prosecute accordingly while these licensees openly violate the CSA. Thank you. You know, that is just a wonderfully, and I thank you for it, comprehensive review of the prosecutorial issues of the federal-state relationships. And I think it's really that people who will listen to what you said in that review will have a real understanding of what the background is and what the issues are in terms of federal-state criminal prosecution and the status of the law. But there are many people here that are focusing on this. And the question is, what then is the impact for current economic activity? There are different people involved, users, people in business, finance, What are the banks doing? So look at that from the standpoint, going through all the people, users. Let's start with with users, people who use for medical purposes. Uh, That's one group of people. But in terms of building the business, what about the people who are going into this business? We've seen significant investments in, in, in in this industry all along the chain, from production to distribution to retail sales. Uh, we have uh-huh. finance issues from the standpoint, and you may have, you, you, I'm sure you do have clients who you give advice on this. From the standpoint, let's start with someone who wants to get into this business, who wants to start a business, and there are now many, including some listed businesses. What kind of issues is that person, is that company dealing with, given this ambiguity and complexity between federal and state law? It's really bizarre, I think, for everybody, including the consumers. Um, And we can kind of get into that psychology if you want to later. But because of the federal conflict, its manifestation in day-to-day business takes the strangest shapes and forms. And really, what we've got set up on the state level are fairly sophisticated licensing regimes, but that are built on quicksand because at any moment, the federal government can change its mind. And it has in the past. And we see that 
from how those for, uh, enforcement memos morphed over time from somewhat tolerant to massively intolerant to conditionally tolerant and now to nothing. So it's extremely unpredictable. And even removing that issue, because we are dealing with a very regulated commodity, there is extreme volatility in the marketplace because as industry issues arise from anti-competitive practices to disclosure of people who are in control or financing these things, the states and the regulatory bodies that are overseeing these programs can completely shuffle the deck on regulatory compliance, which has a huge impact on the bottom line, and that these businesses have no choice but to pivot to comply, and that is going to make life extremely difficult. The paramount issue, though, when I talk to clients, we initially have a come-to-Jesus moment that they may not have thought about because they really believe that cannabis has become normalized, the federal government is standing down, and though that may be true in practice. But legally speaking, any practitioner who doesn't have this conversation is not doing right by their clients and, frankly, probably in violation of multiple ethical rules at this point for states that have addressed this. And what they have to remind the clients of whether it's the entrepreneur that's pursuing the license or the investor, institutional or not, that's going to fund that pursuit, that anybody that traffics in a Schedule One controlled substance is committing a federal crime, specifically a felony that carries with it significant penalties, including massive amounts of jail time with mandatory minimum sentences. And even with reform from the federal government over the years, it can be incredibly strict depending on the district in which you're operational. This also goes for investors because even though they may not be the primary trafficker, they are still liable for secondary criminal liabilities, including aiding and abetting by virtue of financing the operation and conspiring to violate the CSA by assisting and taking overt steps to assist through financing and potentially even guidance these cannabis operations. Many of these investors and entrepreneurs are now aware of that, obviously. And every day they sell, every day they produce, every day they distribute, every deal they do, they are taking the risk that they're building a criminal case against themselves. And they have to really bet that the federal government isn't going to do anything here because it's too far gone. But in 10 years, I would not put it past a zealous U.S. prosecutor to try his hand, especially for dealing with a company that's maybe loose on compliance when it comes to state law. Let me ask you a very practical question if we talk about investors simply. There are many forms that people fill out for example, in, in bank loans, in other transactions, mm -hmm. government forms. And one of the questions is, are you aware of any violation of law that you've committed? A question phrased that way, do you think an investor or anyone involved in this industry would have to seriously go through a process about how that question should be answered? Oh, I do. You cannot lie to these financial institutions. You do so at your own peril. I've never seen a bank civilly pursue for damages or any other consequence, a cannabis investor or a business. Inevitably, they shut down the accounts that are associated with the financial institution, mainly because banks and credit unions are controlled by a number of federal laws. They're heavily regulated, but most importantly, the Bank Secrecy Act. So this is where investors and cannabis businesses run into problems in that all of the money that they generate and they put into the bank is going to be considered money laundering, which violates anti-money laundering laws, not to mention the bank itself, the credit union itself, does not want to be under the gun for aiding and abetting and conspiring to violate the CSA by giving accounts to cannabis investors, to cannabis businesses. Now, along with those federal enforcement memoranda that have been vaporized, there is a memo that still stands that came out in 2014 from FinCEN, which is the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. This is a very important memo. Again, doesn't change federal law, doesn't amend federal law, or change the Controlled Substances Act, but it's an incredibly important piece of policy action, really, coming from the Department of Treasury. When Washington and Colorado legalized, immediately the states and the feds identified a major issue. 
because of anti-money laundering laws and the Bank Secrecy Act, cannabis businesses cannot get bank accounts. And for the very reason you stated when folks fill out those forms about knowingly committing federal offenses that violate the BSA, put the bank at risk and put the cash at risk. So very difficult to get a bank account. On the whole, most cannabis businesses are still working in cash. When this memo came out, though, it addressed this situation head on and specifically what it says, and everybody should read this, that's dealing with cannabis businesses or even dealing with ancillary businesses, which are those businesses that serve the cannabis industry, but they don't, quote unquote, touch the plant. That memo, in line with the coal memo, says, if you're in a state with robust regulation, talking to the financial institutions, and you want to take these accounts this is what you need to do. And it is an unbelievable amount of due diligence, insane, and specifically creates a fairly intensive suspicious activity report, commonly known as a SAR system, to notify the federal government, including the Department of Justice, as to whether or not there's a low, medium, or very realistic threat of serious criminal activity going on that the bank can see from the accounts and the movement of the money. So basically the DOJ in a way has dragooned the banks and the credit unions into doing this monitoring that once was a big part of the coal memo. Now with the coal memo out of the way, some of that FinCEN memo doesn't make a ton of sense, but Department of Treasury has not pulled it. It is still alive. Steve Mnuchin, um, the uh, Department of Treasury secretary, basically has said, we want to make this work. And we know that keeping cash from the underground is a major way to defeat public safety issues with these particular businesses. We can better track their taxes. And we know, obviously, it's better for legitimate treatment for them to have bank accounts. This is really going to legitimize the industry, keep people safe. So the desire is there to have this solution, this banking solution, via the FinCEN memo, but it is just a memo, which means it can be gone tomorrow, just like the other DOJ guidance, and it does not change federal law. Last time I checked, um, which is basically spring of last year, there were only about 700 financial institutions participating under the FinCEN memo. That is pretty much nothing. And here in the state of California, because our regulations are not as robust as other states' regulations, Cannabis businesses still have real trouble getting bank accounts. So when that investor goes to fill out that form, if they're not dealing with a financial institution that's following the FinCEN memo, they are going to be an extremely in an extremely precarious position. Well, and that you know, just as a part of reality, because I think some people listening will say, you know, are you are you being too fearful of what may happen here? But one of the things we know, for example, is that prosecutors, because who begin an investigation because of one conduct may, in right. terms of their investigations, look for something else uh, that can be used oh, against yeah. the person that is being looked at. And so this gives that uh, that kind of opportunity in terms of risk. But also, before we move off the banking, and I want to talk more about it, so it's clear the credit card companies will not give it, will not provide facilities to any business involved. Yeah. So that everything, be, as you said, to, become, becomes a cash, uh, a cash business. So let's talk. So what we have here is a growing industry in which perhaps millions of people uh, are involved in all sorts of ways. Uh, and people are going forward, continually growing and building businesses, uh, very excited and feel confident because of state laws, but operating in an environment where under federal law, uh, they're violating federal crimes. Is there any analogy to this in terms of the history <laughs> of the United States, in terms of other yeah. industries? I mean, during Prohibition, we knew, the country knew right. what was illegal. But now we've got right. this gray area where enormous investments are being made and millions of people are being involved. Uh, and yet uh, these things are on the books, as you've said, the instructions on prosecutorial discretion do not change the law so that if a new Justice Department came along and for whatever reason there were a backlash 
and and decided to deal with this the the, schedule, the, the scheduled substances uh, application federally is still on the books uh right have we ever had an industry like this with this kind of federal state uh that you know of that you can think of or is this truly a unique legal situation for lawyers to to find their way through believe me i have tried over the years to analogize this finding some kind of sil- silver bullet based on other commodities and it's it's so bizarre because there is no fundamental right to use cannabis you can't look at this necessarily as a constitutional issue i'm sure some aspects of it could be shoehorned into that but that is a very large uphill battle other than alcohol and prohibition and even then probably not but it was different pardon me the difference in prohibition is it was clearly illegal everyone knew it was illegal there was no equivalent of state laws to the extent Correct. I understand the history. So the flat well, advice was it, there, it's legal. Here you've got this complexity of states authorizing what federal correct. statutes prohibit. Well, and even with prohibition, right, the states were not complicit in any kind of underground activity, but it, it's got those similarities in that the federal government still considers this a totally illegal enterprise. And obviously the difference is the states are totally complicit and they are taking tax dollars openly. And to your point, we have tons of investment coming in and mostly into the ancillary space, which is still a open federal crime. So I really cannot think of another situation in our history where states' rights versus federal rights have played out over what is a commodity at the end of the day. Um, it's incredibly, incredibly bizarre. And in some ways, I tend to agree with Bill Barr. Federal government has let this get out of control yeah. and inevitably where it's going to culminate. And this is where it does share more similarities with prohibition than alcohol. My opinion is the states are going to lead. They're going to be the controllers. They're going to be the ones that are basically under police rights, looking out for their constituents relative to cannabis. It's similar to alcohol. Certain states will always be dry. They will never get on board with it. And there'll probably be some minimal federal regime like in alcohol to get licensed and go into a database. But the states are going to control it because they've already set the policy. And the first ones, really with any serious regulation, go all the way back to 2010 in Colorado because Colorado embraced regulation right off the bat. So we're moving into at least with one state, a decade of regulation where the federal government has had absolutely no presence, right? From the EPA to the NLRB to the USPTO, no participation whatsoever. So I can imagine when the time comes when the the political stars align um, across the parties, it would be very easy for the feds just to delegate this completely to the states, borrowing heavily from the alcohol model. But in the meantime, I mean, you've mentioned state taxation, uh, but what are the other tax issues involved here? People who derive income uh, from participating in, in cannabis businesses, that's that's yes. reportable income, uh, oh, yes. despite the fact that it comes from an illegal federal activity. It still needs to be reported on the federal tax return, doesn't it? That is correct. This is another interesting paradox, and frankly an incentive for the federal government to keep cannabis as a Schedule One controlled substance. Um, what you're referencing goes back to this fairly antiquated provision of the tax code called 280E, and that's the Internal Revenue Code. And what it states, I'll summarize it, is that if you traffic in a Schedule One or Two controlled substance, which cannabis, again, is a Schedule One, you cannot take normal business deductions. Where does this come from? Well, back in 1982, um, and I don't mean to grossly oversimplify it or be flip about it, basically Congress decided that cocaine traffickers in the southern part of Florida could not deduct their AKs and their yachts as part of their quote-unquote business endeavors and basically enacted this law on the back of that activity because it was so rampant. So illegal income is still reportable, but you're not going to get those deductions in a Schedule One or Two setting. What you can take, though, are cost of goods sold, which is basically anything that goes in to the production of the product or the support of the product to get it to market. This also causes another irony in that across the licensing spectrum, and here in the state of California under Malcursa, 
we have 20-plus license types you can secure to start your business from cultivation to manufacturing to distribution to retail and delivery. Cultivators are the ones and manufacturers are the ones who get the most COGS, the cost of goods sold. The distributors and the retailers do not because they don't make anything and 90% of their commercial activity is just trafficking. So they get hammered, right, under 280E. But ironically, cultivators and manufacturers who are literally sourcing the product can do okay as long as they understand what a COG is and they're relatively conservative. But there is no end in sight any kind of reform around changing this law to accommodate the unforeseen circumstances of states leaning in on legalization. There have been a handful of court cases to try to erode 280E and its evasiveness and to try to change 280E. But the tax court has indicated it really has no interest in doing that. It's going to take an act of Congress. Um, So this is another federal overhang where the conflict manifests. That was totally unforeseen on both sides. Let's talk about a, a specific hypothetical to folk. I mean, this is an incredible set of issues. So assume, for example, there's a limited partnership that gathers investors to uh, be in this business. And some of the mm-hmm. normal business expenses that otherwise would be taken uh, cannot be taken uh, under the provisions of the tax code you've talked about. But if that investor receives a K-1, for example, from the partnership in which Mm -hmm. whoever was doing this work did not properly take account of the restriction on deductions, Uh, that could be a violation. But in addition, if it's done properly, if if the deductions are not taken, then income tax will have to be paid essentially on gross income rather than net income. Is is that the effect of the way this, what is now in the law works? You are correct. And the last time it was calculated seriously, and you know, just to clarify and disclaim for listeners, I am not a tax professional, but having the corporate and the transactional side, especially on the M&A, 280 is incredibly important. And especially if someone's going to buy one of these businesses to do the look back, because many people get this wrong. But as far as the effective income tax rate, it hovers between 70 and 80%. Yeah. No, you, I, I appreciate your saying because neither of us are tax professionals, but the issue yeah. is on the books. And I guess the thing we can clearly say is that anyone involved in these businesses should make sure they get advice not only from a tax professional, but from a tax professional who is knowledgeable uh, in this area oh, of, of doing absolutely. returns involving that, cannabis businesses. Correct. And that, you know, that includes finding a certified public accountant that has some experience with this analysis because it is not normal um, and it is not run of the mill and it needs to be somebody hopefully that's been through one of these 280 audits. And you can imagine on the corporate side, the dancing that some of these companies do to try to get around 280 or avoid 280, it can lead to major audit invitation from the IRS and the IRS will not hesitate to blow up the entire structure to find secret traffickers, for example, like management companies, that they will force to report under 280E. And if you have a pass-through, like an LLC, like a partnership, you are going to have some serious personal tax liability if you didn't quarterback that from the beginning. And this is another place, along with banking, it's just a massive epidemic that really acutely and disproportionately affects cannabis businesses. So this, I mean, we talked about the entity getting tax advice, but the individual investor, I'm thinking of people who invest in limited or general partnerships and basically get K-1s at the end of the year mm-hmm. uh, it, and, and report the income based on the K-1 report, uh, that those people will be incurring some risks in terms of the IRS if, if, the, uh, if, if they're ever focused on. Correct. What about other things here that we think about? What about intellectual property? Trademarks, for uh, example, are there effects on the ability to trademark things in the in the cannabis space because of the federal prohibitions? There are. Um, and the USPTO is pretty interesting on this topic. Um, back in 2008 or 2009, the USPTO actually had created a class where you could register your cannabis goods for protection. And this would have included strain names, dispensary names, names of edibles, and people were registering all kinds of stuff, right, from the chronic to Acapulco Gold, 
um, to these very, you know, classic names that we've seen for years anecdotally from the industry for strain names and product names. And the DOJ came to the USPTO and basically said, what are you doing? This is federally illegal. They cannot get protection you know, across the United States, they can't even interstate traffic because it violates the CSA, the Schedule One Controlled Substance. And immediately, the USPTO eliminated the class, closed the window for application, refunded everyone their fees. And it made perfect sense because under the Lanham Act, where that's the source of power to receive your intellectual property protection registration from the federal government above common law, above state law, very important for businesses establishing their brands. Under the Lanham Act, you have to have lawful use in interstate commerce. And cannabis businesses literally cannot have that because of the Controlled Substances Act. So you are not going to get a trademark registration for cannabis strain names cannabis store names, cannabis business names and products from the USPTO, which has forced the majority of cannabis businesses, if they don't just want to rely on common law authorship and proof, to turn to their state governments to get state law-based trademark protections that literally they have to register in every state. And you can imagine, very difficult to secure cannabis licensing to enable sales on a state-by-state basis, which renders cannabis even more of a cottage industry and dilutes some of that brand power that they would otherwise get. There's a very interesting IP issue here involving trademarks because of the recent U.S. Supreme Court opinion involving the the slant trademark on the rock group, where basically trademark protections, even in commerce, were given First Amendment protections that people thought they didn't previously have. First Amendment protections involving scandalous trademarks, for example. Mm-hmm. So there, mm-hmm. there may be an issue here in terms purely of the trademark. Uh, you know, those cases may raise constitutional issues in terms of First Amendment. I don't know if there are any pending now. Uh, but in the meantime, in terms of USPTO regulations, we're at the point where uh, under those regulations and under the laws it's being interpreted, if you're in this cannabis space, there are restrictions on what you can do with your claim trademarks. That's right. And, you you know, uh, occasionally you will have a cannabis company that tries to cloak what they're really doing to get the mark. Um, that's equally as bad of an idea because if the USPTO discovers it, they're going to invalidate the mark and you're going to lose that protection. But where they can get protection is for ancillary goods and services. So think hats, glasses, socks. Um, glassware, even potentially for paraphernalia, if they can show intent beyond cannabis use, is still fair game. I once had a client dispensary in Washington State. They actually got uh, an IP protection for gym towels with their names on it. And that's basically to build that IP portfolio for when the federal government does flip to assert automatic authorship within the class for cannabis goods. Does it make any difference I know a lot of people involved in this think there is a difference, uh, not just in terms of the law, but in terms of, of possible success between limiting to, to, to CBD, the purely medical use, and claiming no THC is involved. Does that make any difference here at all? It does. It really does. Because the 2018 Agricultural Improvement Act, commonly known as the Farm Bill, it's the second version of this bill, the first one passed in 2014, removed hemp from the Controlled Substances Act. So hemp and cannabis, even though hemp is part of cannabis, according to the federal government, is no longer a controlled substance. And if the cannabidiol is derived from hemp, which under federal law basically means this substance does not contain more than 0.3% THC, the USPTO is open for business relative to your intellectual property. And does that affect the rest of the range of issues we've been discussing? Suppose there are companies that make clear that all they're involved in is CBD and they're coming within that, and they followed the restrictions on the amount of THC permitted. It's now legal. Does that change all the other issues we've talked about for those businesses that make explicit their limitation? It really does. They now have a clear-cut path to avoid 280E because this is no longer a Schedule One controlled substance. Ironically, in the banking realm, 
most financial institutions will do business with hemp farmers, but they draw the line at hemp CBD. The reason is because not that the Department of Justice is going to come down on a hemp CBD company, especially when the company can show this has less than the requisite amount of THC that would otherwise make it cannabis, but because the Food Drug and Admin, um, the Food Drug Administration has decided that hemp CBD, essentially, you can't make any medical claims. If you do, it has to go through testing, and it is not safe or proved for use in food and beverages. So it's more the civil enforcement issue really under the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act that, for example, has put the pause on financial institutions and providing bank accounts to hemp CBD businesses. But for everything else, we really don't have that federal conflict anymore outside of the FDA. Well, so there is everything we've talked about. I mean, this really focuses the discussion in terms of people interested in this area uh, because of the hemp CBD exceptions here. There is a way to plan to to move through some of these conflicts. Uh, for example, t- talking about the Internal Revenue Code, if the company were solely a, a CBD company derived from hemp uh, and and therefore legal, then there wouldn't be restrictions on its deductions from, from gross income. Is that correct? That's correct. They are in the free and clear when it comes to taxation. Where they fall down is policing from the FDA, which is administrative and civil at most, unless it can turn criminal, depending on, you know, compliance mandates, but also in the states. Not every state is online with hemp CBD. Here in the state of California, the California Department of Public Health Food and Drug Branch has decided in an FAQ nonetheless that they are going to follow the position of the FDA. Don't put hemp CBD in food and beverages don't make unsubstantiated medical claims. So its legality, state by state, is different in every single state. And increasingly, all of the states are starting to have conversations around hemp CBD, but some are much, much friendlier than others. So even though we have a clear path to compliance, in my opinion, on the federal level in some ways, we still have to deal with state law issues, and not every state is game to let their consumers experiment with hemp CBD. But the, I, does that depend on the nature of the advertising? I mean, suppose people go into business and, and develop and sell the CBD, the hemp CBD, uh, and mm-hmm. don't make any claims as part of their specific advertising, simply rely on what people believe when they see the initial right. CBD, so that it, that right. does not raise an FDA issue because the FDA issue goes to representation, not to not to these other issues. And many of these companies have gotten behind that theory in that they will not make any claims, curative, bodily effects, medicinal at all, and they will let the anecdotal evidence speak for itself. And for all intents and purposes, that has really worked because the FDA in its enforcement priorities has really gone after these folks making overt unsubstantiated medical claims, and then potentially pursuing people on the food and beverage side. But relative to the medical claims that are setting the FDA up, they are egregious, and they have sent multiple cease and desist letters to companies citing in each letter. You can get this. It's available online on the FDA's website, what the claims have been. And it's been everything from CBD will cure your cancer, stop your chemo, to this will help with sleep, this will reduce skin rashes, this will improve your youthful look, um, really spans the spectrum on these curative and bodily claims. So to your point, many companies have backed off of that rhetoric totally and completely to try to fly under the, uh, the radar of the FDA. But to the extent so much of the support here started with legalizing marijuana for medical uses, medical marijuana, and to the extent that the substance that people believe does that is CBD, as long as people don't make the advertising claims, then so many of the risks we talked about uh, were really risks of a product involving THC, but if it only involves CBD and is under the permissible limit for for whatever THC is, uh, the limit for THC, then there is a clear path here to form companies, to invest, to sell, to avoid the risk under the uh, uh, under the f- federal tax code. Uh, mm-hmm. So, the, technically, there is a for those focused on medical marijuana, uh, there is a path here to do this legally within federal and state laws. Is that is that true? Depending on the state, 
the short answer can be yes. Let's talk about California, specifically in California. Given where California is uh, and where we are here, if someone in California starts a business and limits it to CBD, doesn't make advertising claim, relies on Mm -hmm. general perception, then under federal and state law, a structure can be formed and, and, and a process can be set out that doesn't run the risks of a violation of federal law? If the subject company is not putting the hemp CBD into food and beverage, and to your point, also not making unsubstantiated medical claims, the answer is yes. And for whatever reason, California has been lockstep with the FDA on this, where other states like Washington, Colorado, Nevada, Kentucky have gone the total opposite way and allow for food and drinks, pet food, all that stuff. But in California, don't put it into food and drinks and you may have a path to success and full federal legality. Now, what's going to change that is when the FDA adopts regulations around hemp CBD and they have said these are imminent. We know there's this massive demand in the marketplace and not much oversight for consumers. It's buyer beware right now. And we're going to address that with regulation. We just don't know when that's going to come. Is there an issue that people raise technically between cannabis as normally described in the plant and hemp? I mean, does the source for hemp CDB have to, in terms of its production, come from a specific biological entity? That's a very interesting question. And I think very technical lawyers that have looked into the science behind this would say something like cannabis encompasses both cannabis with robust amounts of THC and hemp with very little THC. So the government distinction based on just identifying words is not necessarily arbitrary. It's important, but all of it is part of the cannabis plant. And I think what they would say is the THC distinction is definitely arbitrary because who's to say that industrial hemp must have below 0.3% THC and how the federal government came to that conclusion, I do not know. But as far as the scientific analysis goes, all of this is part of the cannabis plant. And the the DOJ has decided and Congress has decided that for whatever reason, 0.3% is the cutoff, right, to determine that it's industrial hemp. But the truth is, the science of it is that it's all part of the cannabis plant. Hillary Bricken, I want to thank you so much. One thing that is clear from this discussion is that anyone involved in this needs to get good legal advice. Uh, because there are so many paths here and there's so many risks, so many ways to avoid the risk that having someone knowledgeable giving advice on how this should be done is absolutely critical. In addition to your own expertise, I want to thank you because I think what you've done in this broadcast, in this podcast, is make available to people the underlying basis for becoming knowledgeable about how to go forward and the beginning of advice on how to advise clients. And so I think what you've done here in this podcast is a, a contribution to the legal profession. And I want to thank you so much for taking the time to be with us, for sharing your expertise, and for being a guest today. Thank you very much, Hillary. You're very welcome, and I hope it was useful. Journal is very pleased to bring you not only this podcast, but also the opportunity to receive California CLE credit for having listened to it. If you'd like to receive one hour of participatory CLE credit for having tuned into this program, it's very easy to do. Just go to our website, www.dailyjournal.com, go to our podcast library and find this episode. There you'll find a link to a short true-false test. Once you've taken that, one hour of participatory credit can be yours for a very nominal fee. We do appreciate folks that take the opportunity to receive this CLE credit as it helps us continue to offer this podcast to you outside of our usual paywall. In addition to CLE credit for this podcast, we have a full library of podcasts that have aired previous dates and those all have CLE tests attached to them as well. And also in the daily newspaper, we have a range of CLE offerings as well, many attached to prospective columns written by our attorney subscribers. So we hope you'll take the opportunity to claim the CLE credit that the Daily Journal has to offer.